I hope you can follow my English. Ich verstehe Deutsch, aber ich kann nicht gut genug Deutsch sprechen, so ist das. Uh, I, uh, just to begin, I would like to say that I'm in a big temptation to simply drop my talk and comment on what I heard here. Because uh, I like very much, uh, I know a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit of classical music. And I like in the musical accompaniment or musical part to last performance, those a couple of times, four or five, I think, intervention, the trumpet from Fidelio. Uh, are you aware what kind of a paradox that trumpet is? Leonore is ready to sacrifice herself and then the trumpet is like a mystical intervention, everybody freezes freedom. But what is this freedom? Correct me if I'm wrong. The words that we hear is then, is it Joachim or Roca said, her minister is da, her minister is da. So minister brings freedom from king and so on. And uh, this goes on. I mean, you know, this is for me, from my perspective, the central paradox of Freiheit, freedom today. I'm more and more obsessed by what we call uh, the morning after, which in English means after the night of drinking, you know. I'm less and less impressed by this great ecstatic moment. One million people on Tahrir Square, Gezi Square, Syntagma Square in Athens. Okay, okay. It's easy to do this. We all cry, my God, the unity, we are all one with the people. What happens the morning after? Did you see the film V for Vendetta? Yeah. I would sell my mother into slavery to see part two of that film. <laughs> you remember how the film ends. Revolution wins. Uh, we are all that guy with the mask and so on. People storm the parliament. Can you even imagine what happens the next day? Who takes over? Who takes power? How is it organized? And so on and so on. And that's for me the ultimate tragedy, if you want, of the left. Look at what happened with Syriza. It won, and now they are doing what? A proper right-winger should be doing. They are doing it in an even more efficient way, and so on and so on. So, what is going on here? What can we do? I agree with basic thesis, but I don't want to go into it with what I agree, don't agree with the performance that went on here before, because if I got it correctly, uh, you remember at, at the end, it was that hysterical shouting, Freiheit, many voices, and then interrupted by uncanny, protracted, prolonged moments of silence. I think that silence stood for Freiheit. Precisely when Freiheit loses, lost its singing voice, because for me, Freiheit is not ecstasy. Freiheit is angst. Freiheit is not, for me, that's the paradox. Our, and I will return to it later, our spontaneous today, ideological notion of freedom is freedom of choice. As if the model of freedom is you go to a patisserie and decide strawberry cake or chocolate cake. No, for me, the highest freedom, and I speak very ancient metaphysical language here, is freedom to do something not out of a free choice, but because you cannot do it otherwise, to put it simply. Let's Take, say, your country, pathetic example, is under occupation. And the greatest act of freedom is to join resistance, risk your life. But you don't reason, I have a choice now, do this, do that. No, you do it because you cannot do it otherwise. Or let me give you another example, very pathetic one, falling in love. You never have a choice. I mean, if you look around, that girl, that girl, or boy, or animal, so that you will not 
accuse me of metaphysical, binary logic thinking, whatever. You never go around and make a choice. I love you more than you. The moment you do this, it's not love. Love is that you never fall in love. All of a sudden, you discover that you are already in love. The choice is always already made. And that's the highest freedom, maybe. But let's not get lost into it. I will now begin with the first paradox that I see of freedom today. Freedom, I mean here, how we experience freedom. Did you notice, and this is what my title refers to, how in our universe, possible and impossible are distributed in a strange way when we speak about freedom. On the one hand, in the domain of personal freedoms or technology, the impossible is more and more possible, or so we are told. Nothing is impossible. We can enjoy sex in all its perverse versions, and I mean it quite literally. Two years ago in New York, I met a, a chirurg, a surgeon, whose specialty is to cut a penis into two. And somehow he can do it in such a refined way that a man can have sex with two women in the same way and so on and so on. Nothing is impossible. All archives of music are accessible to us. Going into space will be soon available for everyone with money, of course. There is the prospect of enhancing our physical, psychic abilities and so on and so on. You know, the technostic perspective of achieving immortality by changing our identity into a software and we just download oneself from one to another hardware. So everything is possible here. But did you notice how everything is possible at this level? Person intense personal experiences, uh, technological, scientific, generated transformations, but on the other hand, in the domain of social and economic relations, our era perceives itself as the era of maturity, in which, with the collapse of communist states, humanity has abandoned the old millenarian utopian dreams and accepted the constraints of reality, which of course means capitalist reality with all its impossibilities. So at the same way we are being told maybe we will become immortal, you can enjoy any way you want or whatever, but at the same time we are bombarded by a whole series of you cannot. You cannot engage in large, in large collective acts. We are told if you do this, we will end in totalitarian terror. We cannot keep alive old welfare state. It makes us non-competitive, it leads to economic crisis. We cannot isolate ourselves from global market, and so on and so on. We even have the ideological version of this limitation, a leftist one. I noticed how ecology also tends to function like this. Namely, it feeds into this obsession with setting a limit. Temperature can raise and I think this is totally irrational. We are told global temperature for two degrees Celsius. If it's more, it's the end of civilization, global warming, and so on. So on the other hand, it's this desperate search for limit, for what we cannot do. So we live in strange times where, to put it in a funny way, one phrase, uh, maybe we will become immortal, everything is possible, but it's not possible to raise taxes 1% to give more money to education. That's our reality. So maybe the time has come to rearrange our notions of possible and impossible. What is possible, what is impossible. Here is an extreme case of what is perceived as impossible today. Mario Monti, you know who he is, recently said, I quote, those who govern must not allow themselves to be completely bound by parliamentarians, end of quote. Which then is, for Monti, the higher force whose authority can suspend the decisions of a democratically elected rep uh, uh, body el uh, representative of the people. Already back in 1998, 
The answer was given by Hans Tittmeier, at that time the governor of Deutsche Bundesbank, who praised national governments for preferring, it's quote, a wonderful expression, the permanent plebiscite of global markets to the plebiscite of the ballot box. I think it's a wonderful ideological manipulation. Tittmeier keeps the democratic rhetoric, but he claims global markets are more democratic than parliamentary elections since the process of voting goes on in them permanently and is permanently reflected in market fluctuations, not only every four years, and at a global level, not only within the limits of a nation state. So the underlying idea is that, freed from this higher control of markets and experts, parliamentary democratic decisions are irresponsible. True democracy is thus the democracy of the markets. And it's even true that a new form of religion is emerging here. Did you notice how we are gradually entering an area of new animism? Market, although we all rationally know that market is just some kind of a hypostasized agency which doesn't really exist, it's a reified form of the chaotic result of our individual decisions, we nonetheless spontaneously talk as if market is a living being which reacts. We hear again and again, not in religious supplements to daily newspapers, but in economic reports how market expressed its worry, we should satisfy the demand of the market, and so on and so on, as if it's a living being. This, then, is where we stand with regard to democracy and freedom. And I think the big economic financial agreements like TISA or TIP are perfect examples of this state of things. The key decisions concerning our economy are negotiated and enforced in secrecy, out of sight, with no public debate. In this way, the space for decisions of the democratically elected political agents is very limited, and the political process deals predominantly with issues towards, towards which capital is indifferent, like cultural wars. I mean, with all my sympathy for gay rights, abortion rights, and so on and so on. I claim that now I speak as an animist, as if capital is a person. I claim that capital quite likes these struggles. It means we leave big economic decisions behind and we fight cultural wars. This is why uh, I think in our societies, Free choice is elevated into a supreme value. Why? Because we live in a formally democratic society, society of freedom, which means that social control and domination can no longer appear directly as a limit on subject freedom. They have to appear as the very self-experience of free individuals. Now you will say, how is this possible? That our very unfreedom appears to us that we experience it as our freedom. Well, there are many forms of this appearing of unfreedom in the guise of its opposite. For example, when we are deprived of universal health care, we are told that we are given a new freedom of choice. Like the idea is if you are automatically given universal health care, totalitarian state decides on need, but now you are given a free choice. Will you invest the surplus of your money or your credit money for healthcare or will you go a holiday and so on and so on? You have a new freedom of choice. When we no longer can rely on a long-term employment and when we are compelled to search for a new precarious work every year, every second year, we are again told that we are given the opportunity to reinvent ourselves and discover new unexpected creative potentials that lurked in our personality. I read, this is the ultimate obscenity in uh, some uh, uh, capitalist small circulation journal in the United States, a wonderful argumentation for precarious work 
which, that's the irony, explicitly referred to Judith Butler and all those who advocate this kind of a experimentally constructed nature of human identity. They say precarious work means new freedom. You are given a chance to reinvent yourself every year, every second year. Your identity is no longer fixed by society and so on and so on. When we have to pay for the education of our children, we are told that we become entrepreneurs of the self, acting like a capitalist who has to choose freely how he will invest the resources he possesses or borrowed into education, health, travel, and so on and so on. That's the ideology to date. We are all capitalists. Even if you are a poor worker and you acquire, you get some credit, 10,000 francs, let us say, you are free to decide. Will you invest it into your education to earn more? Will you invest it in your children's education? Will you invest it in your health? Or will you simply spend it for a holiday? But the idea is that, okay, I'm investing 5,000. Uh, my capitalist friend is investing 5 billion. But who cares? It's just, as they were singing here, quantitative difference. It's, we are all capitalists. Uh, so we more and more experience our freedom as what it effectively is, a burden that, that deprives us of the true choice, the choice of change. Because I think if the word Freiheit, freedom, has any actual meaning today, we have to move beyond this category of the freedom of choice. True freedom is not the freedom of choice. True freedom is the freedom to collectively change the very conditions of choice. What can you choose and so on. You know, that's what some, at least neoliberals, don't get. That, uh, how to put it, uh, uh, in order for us to be actually free, again, in the, if these words have any meaning today, then quite a dense network of social conditions, rules, regulations should be enacted as the background for it. Freedom doesn't mean I do whatever I want. Freedom means if I feel I can take a walk during the night around Zurich. But what does this imply? That most people rely on certain respect, certain basic rules of safety, that I can rely on police protection, and so on and so on. A whole network of things has have to be here. And I don't have time to go into it further. I'm even more and more tempted to say that freedom is, in a good sense, a dogmatic category. We need, we say today we are being told we shouldn't be dogmatic. We should think critically about everything, hey, hey, usually, you know where I of usually hear this argument for non-dogmatic spirit? With American right-wing liberals who want to justify torture now. No, I think that the measure of the freedom of a society, freedom in a positive sense, is a certain healthy dogmatism. Now you will say I'm crazy, but let me give you an example. Let us say, would you like to live in a society where you would have to argue all the time that women shouldn't be raped? I mean, there is something wrong with this society. I would like to live in a society where, when some stupid man argues, but you know women really like it, they just pretend not to like it, and so on, that you don't have to argue. He simply dismissed as not even funny, an eccentric idiot or whatever. The moment you have to argue about it, there is something wrong with this society. And that's what is also wrong at a more general level today with our ethical standards. Uh, for me, the fiasco was not that torture became acceptable, but that we even accepted the debate about it. This is for me a clear social regression. 20 years ago, no one would even 
have been thinking about possibility of torture. Now, if you are a cynicist, you would tell me, yeah, cynic, uh, yeah, but we all know torture was going on. Ah, here is a good bourgeois, well-mannered communist. I believe in superficial manners, in rules of politeness. We should absolutely reject this cynical argument, but torture is going on all the time. It's not just United States, Guantanamo, Russia, China, they're torturing like crazy. So isn't it better to openly admit it and set some rules about it? I think absolutely no. Not only for the realist pragmatic reason that in this way, even more torture would have been going on, but you know, let me be quite open. I can imagine myself torturing someone in an extreme situation. Let's be ridiculous. Let me improvise this totally ridiculous situation. My small daughter, whom I love, is kidnapped by terrorists, and I have in my basement uh, one mean terrorist who smiles at me. Ha ha, I know where your daughter is. Sorry for the tasteless example. But in such a ridiculous example, I can well imagine torturing him. But you see my point, it shouldn't be normalized. It should, even here I have some doubts, but at least even if out of despair I were to torture the guy, it should have remained something totally unacceptable that I did out of despair. It shouldn't be normalized. So again, uh, uh, what then? should we do apropos this deadlock, where, again, and that's our basic paradox today, the more we are free at the level of personal freedoms, you can read what you want, more or less, you can travel where you want, you can get a job that you want, if you get it, of course. Uh, uh, but this freedom is more and more constrained by a more basic unfreedom. Like, as if the social economic system in which we live is, if not the best possible, at least the least bad, and you can't do anything there. Uh, how, what should we do in this deadlock? Again, exploding personal freedoms, even in China. It's quite paradoxical. They are now on the edge of allowing gay marriages, I heard, and so on and so on. So China is a good example of, of how these small private freedoms can coexist with very limited collective social freedoms. The first thing to do, I want to return to what I was just saying, the first thing to do, I think, is to impose certain limitations. A couple of months ago, Donald Trump, and he is one of us. In Slovenia, he is very popular. You know why? Because Melanie Trump, his wife, is a Slovene woman. So we Slovenes are one step from White House. Okay. <laughs> Donald Trump was unflatteringly compared to a man who noisily defecates in the corner of a room in which a respectful drinking party is going on. But are other Republican candidates for the U.S. presidency substantially any better? I hope you remember a scene from Louis Buñuel's Phantom de Liberté, Phantom of Freedom, in which relations between eating and excreting, shitting, are inverted. People sit at their toilets around the table, pleasantly talking while defecating, and then, when they want to eat, they silently ask the housewife, where is that place, you know? And there, there, and as a dirty private secret, you go there and quickly swallow some sandwiches. So my metaphor is, when I'm looking now at the uh, presidential debates of Republican candidates, they look to me like a reunion in Buñuel's film, you know. But does the same not hold for many leading politicians around the globe today? Was Erdogan, the Turkish president, not defecating in public when, in a recent paranoiac outburst, he dismissed critics of his politics as traitors and foreign agents? Was 
Putin not defecating in public when, in a well-calculated public vulgarity, he, three, four years ago, he threatened a critic of his Chechen politics with medical castration. It was an incredible obscenity. I remember seeing on TV. Putin said, why don't you visit us in Russia? We have doctors who can fit your problems there with your testicles and so on. Uh, was Sarkozy, French president before Hollande, not defecating in public when, back in 2008, he snapped at a farmer who refused to shake his hand, castwa, pauvre con. A very soft translation of this would be, get lost, you bloody idiot, but the actual meaning is closer to something like, fuck you, prick. <laughs> and uh, the list goes on. In a speech to the World Zionist Congress in Jerusalem, now in October 21, 2015, Benjamin Netanyahu suggested that Hitler only wanted to expel Jews from Germany, not to exterminate them, and that it was Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Palestinian Grand Mufti, who persuaded Hitler to kill the Jews. The idea is that uh, 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 Husseini told Hitler that if he just expels the Jews from Europe, they will come to Palestine. And then Hitler asked, what should I do with them? And Mufti replied, burn them. Of course, it's total fiction, but I want to draw your attention to something else, to the fact that, of course, we are full of this type of stories, but what worries me is these stories, these obscene rumors, till now, they were kept private, in a way. We didn't talk about it publicly, and I'm here quite a leftist moral conservative. I think it's a great catastrophe when you are allowed to talk publicly like this. Uh, the problem here is the problem of what Hegel called Sittlichkeit. It's not simply morality, but it's unwritten rules, ethical customs. The thick background of unwritten rules of social life. It's not simply what is allowed and not allowed. It's something much more refined. It's, you know, because I'm so sorry, I don't have more time to go into this, but what always fascinated me is how a set of social rules which keep together or enable the reproduction of certain social body is never composed just of explicit rules. You always get some kind of a higher level rules which, tells, which tell you how to treat the explicit rules. Quite many social rules are meant to be violated. It's prohibited, but the message is do it discreetly. On the other hand, much more interesting, you get rules which allow you to do something on condition that you don't use, use this right. Like you are given freedoms with the silent understanding that you will not uh, use this freedom. I mean, there are many examples from big politics to... Uh, to even to daily life. Don't you have, also here in Switzerland, I, uh, I noticed this habit in my country, in the United States, where, let's say, I invite you to dinner. And I have, maybe, I'm not sure, with you, Swiss, you never know, but let's say I have more money than you. Then, uh, it's, of course, we all know I will pay. But don't you have this custom that when the bill arrives, when I say, I will pay, we have to play this social game that you say, no, 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 I will pay, and then the game goes on for some 20 seconds, and at the end, you concede, okay, if you insist, you pay, but you see the paradox. We both know the outcome. I mean, you, uh, we speak as if there is an actual choice for you to pay, but we both know that I will pay. And we have many manners like this, where we are given a chance, although it is prohibited to take this chance. And I'm not denouncing this as some kind of a totalitarian trick. I claim that this is what makes 
a society alive. This gentle interaction of written and unwritten rules. And for me, the tragedy of so-called political correctness is precisely that uh, political correctness tries to do the right thing, but in a wrong way. Political correctness perceives correctly that these public standards of decency are disintegrating. But it tries to explicitly, to explicitly uh, uh, regulate things. And so we lose this ethical substance of unwritten rules and everything's regulated. Instead, you know, black became African-Americans, fat becomes weight challenge, torture becomes enhanced interrogation technique. And my joking proposal was that why shouldn't they then rape become enhanced seduction technique or whatever. And I think that it's crucial to see how this politically correct gentrification of language, violence should disappear from it, is the obverse of the growing brutality in actual life. And it's not just at this level of manners that we are witnessing a decay, a regression in our social life. It's even generally in how Paranoiac theories, conspiracy theories, which till now, okay, we all love them, but we had the decency of keeping them secret. Now they are more and more publicly debated. Like the last example of madness, some American friends informed me on them. Uh, in the fall of 19, uh, uh, 2015, a big military exercise is called Great Helm 15, took place in southwestern USA, Arizona, Texas, and so on. And all of a sudden, because for quite accidental reasons, at the same time, some uh, Walmart megastores were closed. The paranoia among right-wing populists was that it's incredible. It was that uh, Michelle Obama, not even Obama, when she visited China, she promised to the Chinese that President Obama, at the end of his presidency, will give those states as a present to China. And then the Walmart mega stores were closed because they're already preparing their beds and uh, habitat for the Chinese soldiers to occupy that. Now you will say this is crazy right-wing conspiracy. Maybe, but what is so sad is that even the leading Republicans were afraid to clearly say, this is bullshit. No. For example, the one who is now a president, presidential candidate, Ted Cruz, he said we should take this seriously and he demanded details from the Pentagon, and so on and so on. Uh, the uh, Texas governor, Greg Abbott, ordered the state guard to monitor military exercises. Are they really getting ready to occupy Texas and so on and so on? So uh, uh, this is how I react to the phenomenon of Donald Trump. The key is this one. I claim he's not a dangerous eccentric. What his excesses mask is his ordinariness. Namely, if you look effectively at his program, not these stupid racist, sexist provocations, he's just an old centrist Republican. Maybe he will even be much, would have been much better than some other Republicans. What he's masking with, with his excessive, tasteless remarks is simply his vulgar, his vulgar, uh, or his vulgar ordinariness. Uh, so, uh, now you will say me, but why talk about politeness and public manners today when we are facing more pressing real problems? Again, because I claim manners do matter, especially today. Back in the 1960s, when I was young, occasional vulgarities were associated with political left student revolutionaries like Rudy Dutschke, Daniel Cohn-Bendy, often used common language to emphasize their contrast to official politics with its polished jargon and so on. 
Today, vulgar language is an almost exclusive prerogative of the radical right, so that the left finds itself in a surprising position of a defender of decency and public manners. And I think the left should shamelessly use this role. That's maybe one way to fight, to fight against radical right for this so-called silent uh, majority. No, the left is protecting good manners today. Uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, uh, why do we have this uh, explosion of conspiracy theories and so on? Because even if we are personally free in the sense of freedom of choice, the social process is becoming more and more non-transparent. Things are just taking certain terms and we don't even perceive ourselves as able to steer it, to control it. For example, I'm extremely worried in quite a naive sense. Are you aware that now we are maybe approaching, if not a new world war, but at least a new series of explosions of local wars, Turkey, Russia, and so on and so on. I think we live in an extremely dangerous moment, but we don't even think about a new peace movement or whatever. We just accept it. That's how things go. We, the, that's my point. The obverse of our sense of individual freedom is that we accept a total non-transparency of social life. Things simply happen. There will be war, and we don't think in the terms of how to prevent war, we think in the terms of how to squeeze out. Many of my friends are already thinking, where should I emigrate? Should I go to South Argentina? Uh, should I go to Island? To New, New Zealand is popular in Slovenia now. How to get out? Now I come to my concluding paradox. This non-transparency is today often embodied in faces. Sometimes faces become symbols, not symbols of a strong individual, but symbols of anonymous forces behind these faces. For example, the first such face a year ago was the stupidly smiling face of, I'm sorry if I pronounce the name uh, incorrectly, Jeroen Dieselblum, president of the Eurogroup, the symbol of the European Union's brutal pressure on Greece. And my friend Varoufakis told me wonderful stories about this, how all the time media were full of this Dieselblum, with his stupid smile explaining, no sorry, we can do this, we can. No one elected him. He was a totally anonymous Bureaucrat there, uh, Varoufakis even told me that when they were deciding the fate of Greece, Varoufakis said, can I get please the official minutes record of this meeting? And everyone was in a panic, they withdrew, you are bureaucrats, they come back and said, sorry, we cannot do this because this is just a consultation, this meeting didn't really take place. I mean, it's total non-transparency. Then, uh, recently, when the big deal is the international trade deal, TIP, T-I-P-P, there is a new face, a cold face of European Union Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström, who, when asked by a journalist how she could continue her promotion of TIP in the face of massive public opposition, she responded without shame. I do not take my mandate from the European people. And in an unsurpassable act of irony, her family name is a variation of Maelstrom, you know, a descent into the Maelstrom, Edgar Allan Poe's story, and so on and so on. Because when people worry about democracy today, okay, will we survive the Muslim invasion and so on? I mean, I think we should worry much more about agreements like TIP which severely limit the, let's say, uh, the, the policy space for political intervention of democratically elected governments. The most dangerous element, as you maybe know, uh, 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 are so-called investor-state dispute 
settlements. This means that uh, unelected transnational corporations can dictate the policies of democratically elected governments. Let me give you an example. Swedish company, energy company, Vattenfall, is now suing German government for billions of euros over its decision to phase out nuclear power plants after the Fukushima disaster. This is for me a totally legitimate public health policy. Like there is a danger if there is another catastrophe in Europe like Fukushima, so let's try to move out to gradually abandon uh, uh, nuclear energy. The argument is that when they, the Swedish company, invested in Germany, the conditions were different, tax financial, and that this new regulation limits their chances of profit, so they want to be remunerated by billions of dollars and so on and so on. This is just one example of what is going on. But okay, let me go to uh, the last example and here, final part now, we will see the true problem of freedom. Now a third anonymous face has emerged, Franz Timmermans, the first vice president of the European Commission, who in December 2015 scolded the Polish government for adopting a new law which poses a threat to the democratic constitutional order since this law subordinates constitutional court to the authority of government. Timmermans also condemned the new media law, which enables the parliament to sack all executives at the country's public television and radio companies and so on and so on. The ruling party justified this law as necessary to stifle unfair critique of its actions. Uh, and in an immediate sharp reply, the Polish government won, warned Brussels quote, to exercise more restraint in instructing and cautioning the parliament and the government of a sovereign and democratic state. Now, what's the problem here? From the standard left liberal view, it is of course inappropriate to put these three names into the same series. Dieselblum and Malmström personify the pressure of the Brussels bureaucrats on states and their democratically elected government, while Timmermans intervened to protect the basic, demo basic democratic institutions like independence of courts or free press from a government that overstepped its legitimate powers. That would be the counterpoint, that Timmermans, but as the Polish side responded, is Timmermans not a UE a European administrator lacking any democratic legitimization. And did he not exert that pressure on a democratically elected government of a sovereign state? I myself encountered a similar problem when I was recently, four months ago, I think, answering questions from the readers of Süddeutsche Zeitung about the refugee crisis. And the question which attracted most attention, the question of a reader, concerned precisely democracy, of course, with a right-wing populist twist. The question was, when Angela Merkel made her famous public appeal, inviting hundreds of thousands of refugees into Germany, where was her democratic legitimization? What gave her the right to bring such a radical change to German life without democratic consultation. My point here, of course, is not to support anti-immigrant populists, but to clearly point out the limits of democratic legitimization. And the same goes for those who advocate radical opening of the borders. Are they aware that since our democracies are nation-state democracies, their demands equal suspension of democracy? A gigantic change should be allowed to affect a country without democratic consultation of its uh, population. And we often hear about 
the democratic deficit of European Union. But we encountered there a similar problem. Now, in his political movement, new Varoufakis, otherwise my good friend, the name of the movement is Diem, called for transparency of European Union decisions. But the problem is, since in many countries the majority of the public was against the, uh, reducing the Greek debt, rendering European negotiations public would make representatives of these countries, would make them advocate even tougher measures against, against Greece. We encounter here the old problem. What happens to democracy when the majority is inclined to vote for racist and sexist laws? I am not afraid to draw here the conclusion that emancipatory politics should not be bound by formal democratic procedures of legitimization. People quite often do not know what they want, or do not want what they know, or they simply want the wrong thing. There is no way, no simple shortcut here. The context of this deadlock is the big bad wolf that is now emerging as the main threat in the eyes of the liberal left. The threat of new fascism embodied in anti-immigrant rightist populism. This scarecrow is perceived as the principal enemy against which we should all unite, from whatever remains of the radical left to mainstream liberal democrats. Europe is portrayed as a continent regressing towards a new fascism which feeds on the paranoiac hatred and fear of the external ethnic religious enemy, mostly Muslims. While this new fascism is directly predominant in some post-communist East European countries, Hungary, Poland, and so on, uh, it is getting stronger and stronger also in many West European much more developed countries. But I think it is here that we should not lose nerves and we should persist in the basic Marxist insight. This so-called fascism is strictly a secondary phenomenon engendered by its apparent opposite, the open liberal democratic universe. So the only way to truly defeat it is to overcome the imminent limitation of this liberal democratic universe. Plus, this fascism is something new, a truly democratic one. The prospect that we are facing now is the prospect of Europe with a revitalized democracy which will bring to power anti-immigrant populists. More generally, we should be suspicious about the tendency of the left to quickly brand any undesirable phenomenon as fascism. I doubt if this really, this new anti-immigrant populism, that it really deserves the name fascism. Again, the source of unease is the unpleasant fact that this new fascism is democratically legitimized. Leftist critics of European Union now find themselves in a strange predicament. On the one hand, they deplore the so-called democratic deficit of European Union, and they propose plans to make more transparent the Brussels decision-making. On the other hand, they support the non-democratic Brussels administrators when they exert pressure on democratically legitimized new fascist tendencies. Furthermore, many leftist liberals like Habermas, who bemoan the ongoing democratic, the ongoing decline of the European Union, I think they idealized the past of the European Union. The democratic European Union, the loss of which they bemoan, never existed. Recent European Union policy is simply a desperate attempt to make Europe fit for new global capitalism. The usual left liberal critique of the European Union, it's basically okay, just it has a little bit of a democratic deficit, betrays a certain naivety they don't see that democratic def deficit is a necessary part of the global structure. The problem, namely, is uh, uh, there is a double problem here, I think. The first problem is that 
the only way to actually fight global capitalism would be through some kind of transnational democracy. But I think that this cannot be done without changing the precisely global capitalist system. That capitalism is global, but can only thrive in conditions of uh, geopolitical uh, conflict between different nation states and so on and so on. Nation states are not in decline. They are, if anything, getting stronger and stronger today. That will be our ruin. Look at United States, Russia, China, and so on and so on. So I think that, uh, uh, that uh, the world which are we are approaching now is the world of global capitalism, free circulation of commodities, but this economic opening is accompanied by the growing separation in social spheres, more and more ethnic fundamentalism, more and more new forms of apartheid. I think that we are finally seeing how uh, things like growing nationalisms, uh, relying on local traditions, are no obstacle to global capitalism. Global capitalism is in immanently, in this sense, multiculturalist. It's the not only easy, but the most natural thing for global capitalism is to accommodate itself to local traditions. For example, in India, a Marxist friend of mine sent me, his name is Saroy Giri, great guy, how the most dynamic Indian new capitalists all go regularly to prayer to Hindu goddesses and so on and so on. It, in China, the whole official ideology today is, uh, of course, Confucianism. They even no longer talk about communism. The term they use is harmonious society, and so on and so on. Now, uh, the last problem I have with uh, democracy, I'm not against democracy in the sense for some new totalitarianism, but I think what we need if we want really to confront the problem Europe is in today is to ask openly how our democracies effectively function. And my hypothesis is a very nasty one here. My hypothesis is that in a normally functioning parliamentary democracy, people don't want really to decide. Or rather, they want the appearance of decision, but they want to be discreetly told what to choose. They want not to be, they don't want to lose their faith. When people are really confronting a choice, like they did in Greece, last election, Syriza, and so on, it's usually perceived as a crisis of democracy. So uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, in monarchies, when they were no longer absolute monarchies, this is even a great theoretical problem. The king should not decide but how to save the face of the king. And I think the same problem we face today with our new king, ordinary people, voters in a democracy. Their face should be saved, but they shouldn't be really allowed to decide. And that's our paradox today. Domination is maybe stronger than ever, but it absolutely should not appear openly as a domination. Uh, so let me conclude on a personal note. In contrast to many of my friends, I still refer positively to European emancipatory legacy. I'm a Eurocentrist. I, of course, don't have in mind European values in the predominant ordinary sense what our media refer to when they talk about how our values are threatened by Islam and so on. I think that the greatest threat to what is worth saving from, Euro from European legacy are precisely today's anti-immigrant populist defenders of Europe. I mean, Europe run by Pegida, Marine Le Pen, and so on, that would no longer have been Europe. But on the other hand, to be blunt and direct, Plato's thought is a European Platon event. Radical egalitarianism is a European notion. Communism is a European notion. The notion of modern subjectivity is 
European. When Alain Badiou celebrates the power of capitalism to disintegrate old communal ties, when, in a strict Marxist sense, he detects in this disintegration the opening of the space for radical emancipation, he speaks strictly on behalf of the emancipatory European legacy. And this is, I think, a great struggle, one of the great struggles that goes on today in what remains of the left. There are so-called anti-Eurocentric post-colonial thinkers who attack Badiou, me and other proponents of communism as all too European. They claim, no, communism failed. They claim that the only way to resist global capitalism is on behalf of local traditions. You have, for example, African post-colonial thinking. They find some tribes which said, oh, my voice is voice of a community of my tribe, so this is a good argument against European individualism and so on. You have some quite serious friends of mine who claim that there is some mysterious tribe in Amazon, deep in Amazon jungle, and they have some primordial wisdom which can resist global capitalism and so on and so on. Uh, so either we play this game or it's played by China today, like Confucianism more, more better for human rights than Western individualism. So it's this communal resistance, local traditions and so on, to global capitalism. On the other hand, it's the, and I know what fiasco communism was, but where I stick to communism, paradoxically, is in its great appraisal of capitalism. It was absolutely clear to Marx that the only new space for freedom is opened through capitalist disintegration. And I think Marx was absolutely vindicated with what goes on today, where with the rise of so-called Asian values, Capitalism, which has nothing to do with Asia, more with uh, authoritarian forms of government, that we more and more see how perfectly uh, ancient anti-global local traditions can be combined with global capitalism. They fit perfectly. The symbol for me today is, for example, Modi, the Indian prime minister, who is at the same time absolutely radical neoliberal in economy, but at the same time uh, pretty much a Hindu fanatic. Local traditions and so on and so on. Uh, uh, so here we have to make a decision. Do we resist global capitalism on behalf of some local traditions it undermines, or do we endorse the power of disintegration that pertains to global capitalism, and so that we are aware that only through this disintegration, a new space of freedom emerges. That's why my hero is, for example, Malcolm X, the black leader. He was a political genius, I claim. Why? You know what's Malcolm X? X stood for the fact that blacks were uprooted from their from their uh, country in Africa. They had no family communi commu uh, community background. They were torn brutally out of their culture. But Malcolm X saw it that this X is not just a negative feature. He never fell into this politically correct liberal stupidity, which was embodied in some TV series popular Alexis Haley roots 20, 30 years ago. Oh, blacks, they should return to Africa, find their roots there. Oh, I'm coming from that tribe, and so on and so on. No, Malcolm X saw this being cut off from your roots as a chance of new universal freedom. He made it quite clear. It's an ingenious trick of seeing the problem itself as part of a solution as opening up the space of a solution. Which is why, again, I think today, at least, reference to European legacy is important. Why? Not because I'm a conservative Eurocentrist, but I claim that today's global capitalism can survive quite well with less and less 
democracy. No wonder critique of Eurocentrism is so popular today, because it fits perfectly today's global capitalism. They all play the same game. Erdogan plays it, uh, Putin plays it, brutal capitalism combined with local, uh, local authoritarian regime uh, legitimized with some crazy uh, traditional local ideology, whatever, Orthodox Church, Islam. And uh, this is why, with all the horrors that come out of European tradition, colonialism, and so on and so on, I think that European legacy of emancipatory universality is something that is more precious than ever today. Thanks very much for your patience. Now, uh, just one minute more. Uh, I was so glad when my friend Patrick told me there is no debate, because now I can say it's a total lie, hypocrisy. I'm so sad that we don't have time to debate and so on, you know. Sorry? You are too... Yeah, yeah, but it's so nice, you know, this hypocrisy. I love it. But I want nonetheless with you to clarify one detail, because... Uh, I'm now often accused, I, was, I read today on the web that some Precht, or how is he called, German philosopher, accused Sloterdijk and me of Nazism, and so on. My God, they get it so wrong. What I really am horrified at, I, I will tell you, allow me just this, what I like in Switzerland. I know you did many crazy things, and so on. Money, and my favorite Swiss fantasy is that isn't it under your Alps there are some mysterious tunnels and cities where millions can move there in five hours or whatever? I also have my own beautiful fantasies about Switzerland. For example, I hope you don't know the joke. Years ago, here in Zurich, in some place on the other side of the river, uh, I debated with my friends about, uh, you know, in Europe we identify certain sexual practices with certain countries. Like, if you say, let's do it the Italian way, it usually means anal intercourse. If you say, let's do it the Spanish way, it means men's penis between women's breasts. So the debate was, what would have been the Swiss way? And there was a big debate. And I think I gave a quite good proposal. Okay, feminists will not like it. You know what is Swiss army knife? The knife with all those, no? My proposal is Swiss army wife, you know. Masturbates with one hand, with others, like, and so on. So that's my fantasy of Switzerland, okay. But you know why I mention this obscenity? No, no, I'm not losing my nerves. Because I think that only in this way, through, uh, maybe I failed here, but through, this type of uh, shared obscenities, can you really overcome racism? I think that without this risky step, it's very risky, you can fall into actual racism, into exchange obscenities, you are stuck with the politically correct, official anti-racism, we, we uh, respect each other, and what do I get then? You know, in Switzerland, what do I get then? You teach me about yodeling, about your spetzli or whatever. No, I want Swiss army wife and so on. But the other thing is that what I like about you, maybe it's a myth, I don't know. I was told that you are not culturally too united with Swiss, the French Swiss. That you have a distance. I don't think this is bad. I think we should stop this eternal superego, guilt-feeling idea, we don't understand each other enough, and so on. I mean, this is the ideology that, I mean, I want even more refugees in Europe. I just want to fight this human compassion, we are all humans beneath the masks ideology. For example, the most stupid proverb, and proverbs are generally extremely stupid. The most stupid proverb that I know, and it's often quoted by today's multiculturalists, is the enemy is the one whose story you are not ready to hear. 
Okay, it's easy to understand. Like, you know, I objectify the enemy, I, uh, I uh, paint a crazy picture, but if I open myself to him, I will blah, blah. But my counterpoint is, really? How far do you go here? So it's good to learn that Hitler was our enemy because, you know, we were not ready to open ourselves to the story. No, what if, and that's the problem of the neighbor, next, in biblical sense. What if a neighbor is a monster? What if, and the, the same holds for us, I'm not a racist here. I don't believe that we should penetrate deep into each other and then when you get some basic deep story, now I know what you are. I have this psychoanalytically trained temptation that if you go too deep, you find just a lot of shit and horror and so on. And I, you know, my ideal is not to live with other nations and, oh, I understand you, tell me your stories, I would rather kill my... No, my ideal is I live in a big building. There is a Vietnamese guy here, Spanish there, black guy there, Japanese there, and we politely ignore each other. <laughs> From time to time, a miracle happens. But this is very rare, you know, all of a sudden, there is some communication, usually I claim it has to be mediated through some dirty joke or small, but uh, how can we understand others when we don't even understand ourselves? That would be my point. We, we are not isolated entities and we have some inner myths and so on and so on. We really, we ourselves don't know what we are. We are racist towards others. Our racism towards others is always mediated by a mediated by an uncertainty abyss fear of what we are in ourselves so i what i think uh, that the worst ideology today is this ideology of open yourself up to the others you will see there are people like us no they are not because we ourselves are not people like us we are monsters, and so on. That's, that's the truly difficult thing to accept. That, you know, this is... No, okay, I will give you a nice example of this. Uh, when I was in Israel, media reported of uh, all celebrated it, wonderful human contact. An Israeli anti-terrorist unit brutally invaded, entered in the middle of the night a Palestinian apartment, because they suspected that the father of the family who was suspected to be a terrorist is there. So what happened was that, of course, the guy was not there, only his wife and children, and a scared daughter started to shout, and mother called her, come, Sarah, come. And then one of the invading soldiers, when he heard the name, discovered that, but his daughter has the same name, Sarah. And he stepped towards the mother, you see the photo, oh, we have the daughter of the same name. This is the most disgusting thing I can imagine. You know, all of a sudden the reality of, of occupation, terror disappears. Oh, beneath all that, we are all the same warm people. No, we are not. The reality, ultimate, is not the reality that we are all deep people behind. The reality is the reality of the struggle. I will now stop. Thank you.